HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. While visions of sugar plums and gingerbread... Oh, wait a minute. What are sugar plums anyway? We'll find out today on A Taste of the Past. Welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And today, as we are recording live, we are in the throes of the Christmas season, even though the weather outside couldn't be less indicative of that. But here we are. And what does that make us think about? Think, Of course, Christmas cookies, Christmas treats, Christmas sweets. Wow, there's a lot of sugar associated with Christmas. So... I got to thinking about that and invited a couple of people in who are no strangers to the show to talk about Christmas sweets. Kathy Kaufman. Kathy has written, she writes and she teaches and lectures extensively about food and culinary history and is the chair of the Culinary Historians of New York. Um, she, are you teaching currently at food study at the Food Studies Center at NYU? Can I say uh, that? I will be doing it in the spring. In the spring, okay. You've taught at all, many other schools at ICE and other places in New York. And she was the associate editor of the recently published book *Savoring Gotham: Food Lovers' Companion to New York City*, and contributed to the Oxford Companion to *Sugar and Sweets*. And my second guest, uh, equal in terms, is Michael Crandall, who was the associate editor of the. Companion to Sugar, Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets. Michael, too, is a food writer and a culinary historian, cooking teacher, and an artist. He is the author of Sweet Invention, A History of Dessert, and The Donut, History, Recipes, and Lore from Boston to Berlin. Welcome, guys. This is, this is fun. I'm looking forward to talking about all these sweet things, although I have to tell you, um, I really haven't eaten much today, so I'm going to get really hungry by the middle of the show. Isn't that the point? I, I guess. <laughs> but start out first. Um, I titled the show Sugar Plums and Gingerbread. And 
I'll ask Kathy, what exactly are, you know, you ask people, what are sugar plums? No one knows what sugar plums really are. No, and they're not those beautiful little plums that you get in September and October at the Uh Union Square Market that are sweet and wonderful. That is not what a sugar plum is historically or the way they are used in Christmas confections. It's basically any dried and candied fruit. It can be something as simple as a raisin or um, certainly Plums, prunes, if they're uh, dried and candied, could be considered sugar plums. Any of the um, dried fruits that Hmm. are sweetened, things even like the uh, candied rind. And what about just a hard candy, some of the the, the dragues or even sugar-covered seeds were those would these those be considered sugar plums or otherwise so, some people might call them sugar plums but they might also be considered comfits the mm-hmm. little um candied seeds things that you see um you can still get them actually in indian restaurants when you leave those multicolored things that's really a form of comfit uh, they were very popular in the middle ages in the renaissance um very labor-intensive to make. I've tried making them a few times, and it's a sugar syrup that gets put over spices very slowly. You build up uh, different layers. Um, things like a Jordan almond is right. actually another uh, example of this kind of broad category of comfits and uh, sugar plums. Do we know anything about when they were first associated with, with Christmas treats? Either of you. Well, you see things that show up in, say, a mincemeat or a plum pudding, Mm -hmm. and those are things that have been associated with Christmas for hundreds of years, and sometimes they've been politically divisive. Uh, When you go back to the religious wars between the Catholics and the Protestants, uh, Protestants were very adamant in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries about not eating these sorts of sugar plum infused uh, puddings and cakes because they were, quote, idolatry in a crust. They were mm. not what you wanted. <laughs> well, of course, the whole celebration of Christmas is, you know, that that changed over the centuries as well. Um, but we do have one type of sweet that is definitely always associated with Christmas, and that's gingerbread. And Michael, you just wrote a a terrific little piece in in Zester, um, the online uh, Zester Daily magazine about uh, gingerbread. Tell us a little bit about the background and history of gingerbread. Gingerbread is one of those sweets that has been around Europe, oh, probably since the Roman days. Um, The problem is that every different culture makes it slightly differently, and Mm -hmm. because in England they made it, or still make it, as we make it with ginger, it's called gingerbread, right? Um, in France, ginger is usually not the major element in it. Often it's anise and cinnamon and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Germany, and if we think of gingerbread, I think a lot of us think of things like you know gingerbread houses and gingerbread men, all of which tend to or, uh, originate in Central Europe rather than in the UK. Uh, there, there isn't any ginger in gingerbread. Lebkuchen. The German version of it is a, it's a spice bread Mm -hmm. and it's a sweet spice bread. And yeah, it goes back, well, it goes back to the middle ages. And one of the interesting things about it, of course, is that whereas we often make our gingerbread with, uh, molasses, uh, because molasses used to be cheap, Mm -hmm. um, Germans used to make it with honey because honey was much cheaper than sugar. So it was a honey bread. It was a honey spice bread. And in the days when sugar was inaccessible to 
regular working class folk or, you know, the peasantry, um, they would use the gingerbread in lieu of powdered sugar so that if you were making porridge, you would crush up some gingerbread and sprinkle it on top Hmm. or um, maybe some stewed uh, apples in the winter and you would sprinkle it on top. But yes, it was very much associated with the Christmas holiday because it was fancy. It was a special, it was expensive. Right. Those spices were expensive. And that was, that's exactly my, my next point in that, that sweets, you know, why are so many sweets relegated to that holiday season? Sugar was expensive, right? Absolutely. Sugar was expensive. um, But I think what is interesting is that these sweets are something that the very well-to-do would have had year-round. And it's not something that was just limited to the Christmas season for them. But for the peasantry, the uh, urban workers who are not part of an aristocracy, uh, these were very, very special occasion uh, treats and Bringing them in at Christmas time uh, made a lot of sense, both because you had dried fruits that you could then candy or use honey. As Michael said, honey was also something that could occasionally be used. Um, and it was something that this was a season of feasting right. uh, well, during of course, the holidays. And a way to preserve the fruits as well. So, Absolutely. You know, you had your harvest, right? And Keep and, them preserved. And the other thing is that many of our Christmas traditions actually are German. Uh, the Christmas tree, the Christmas, Christmas ornaments, uh, Christmas cookies, the idea of Christmas cookies. Or Dutch, Sinterklaas. Uh, <laughs> and Dutch as well, and English. I mean, it all gets mixed up, yeah. but uh, a whole bunch of them are, in fact, German. Hmm. And in Austria and Germany, Christmas cookies, what we would call Christmas cookies, weren't Christmas cookies at all around 1850 or 1830. They were simply cookies you would serve with your coffee or with your tea and of course who did this was the upper upper classes or the upper sort of bourgeoisie and the rest of the people would see this and they could only afford these ingredients at christmas uh-huh. so in essence this idea of having all these different um and other kind of uh spice cookies at christmas or um the pepper flavored ones they were served at Christmas because it was fancy. They were emulating the wealthy. And, of course, now sugar is super cheap, and it has been for 100 years or so. Mm-hmm. But that tradition of the nuts and the almonds and the sugar and the butter, all expensive, expensive ingredients, um, were saved up for the holiday. Yeah, interesting. And... Um and it's interesting because, Kathy, you mentioned how uh, during the religious wars and the Protestants, of course, being, you know, denying people of everything. Sticks <laughs> in the mud, yes. The Puritans. There's the Puritans a reason they're right. called Puritans. <laughs> right. uh, that it's interesting because sugar was, if you go back to the history of sugar, I mean, it was originally um, a little bit of sugar helped the medicine go down as the song goes right i mean it was oh, absolutely if you go back to humoral medicine doctrines you would add sugar to something to help quote correct the balance of the dish that you were eating sugar if i remember correctly it's a little bit warming and a little bit drying and that's usually thought to be a good thing particularly in the winter when it's cold and wet and you need foods that are going to quote warm and dry the body a little bit and 
It's a very complicated theory. It goes into where you are, your gender, your age, all of this. But in general, yeah, during the winter, you wanted things that were going to be warming and drying. Hmm. And of course, we still have sugar in our cough syrups and cough drops and, you know, a candied, something that tastes good. Something And it's a little bit soothing, yeah, actually, absolutely. creating that sense of uh, moisture and stuff when you've got a sore throat. Right, Michael? Absolutely. <laughs> and moreover, it was considered good for you. Yeah. You know, there's this... Um, crusade that we're in the middle of against sugar and as we know these things come and go but certainly a hundred years ago sugar was not considered something that was unhealthy I guess everything in moderation, as well, Julia Child would say. Right? Exactly. I mean, think about uh, Coke syrup and soda syrups that were part of the drugstore culture. That's where you got these things made up, as right. the drugstore soda fountain. Okay, now we are going to now embark upon a discussion about the fabled fruitcake. You <laughs> brought it up with the candied fruits, you know, and the, and the sugar plums. Let's talk about fruitcakes. You know, some people, they they you know, they malign fruitcake. And then the other people who have had a very good fruitcake love fruitcake. But fruitcake, there's a variety of fruitcakes all over the world. Um, and certainly in, in uh, Germany, Italy, and everywhere. But I have a friend in South India who is a Christian. And they make a fruitcake every year. And what they do is they go and take their own fruit. They candy it from their own orchard they wow. candy it they're in the middle of the hills in south india and then they proceed to make it and they make it months and months in advance and it is the most amazing thing labor intensive uh, super labor intensive yeah. and i think that's the thing about it is that fruitcake when it was commercialized and you know factories started producing the stuff the quality became so appalling that it is that fruitcake that everybody despises. Right, right. Well, of course, there the you know the the tradition of making a fruitcake and branding it, and you know making it early in the season, as you just mentioned, in the South Indian family, and or in the Caribbean, Caribbean, um, the Caribbean. What is that up? There's well, there's a whole bunch of different ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, rum cake is very traditional mm-hmm. for the holiday, uh, being the Caribbean rum, right? And uh, it does require a certain. Uh, how shall we say, marinating aging process. Aging process. <laughs> yeah, I had read something about a Caribbean black cake. That's why I asked you, what, what was that? Cause I, I think I each, each island has its own tradition. Well, and each country has its own version of a fruitcake. But Kathy, you were, what, do we know anything about the, the history of the fruitcake? Well, I think the fruitcake is really an offshoot in many ways of a plum pudding or something like that. Right. They have comparable ingredients. Uh, fruitcakes now would be baked, whereas the original plum puddings mostly were boiled, although there are a couple of baked uh, recipes for uh, plum puddings. And you know, the question is how much and how dense is the fruit going to be? Um, I think if you want to look at a continuum, of fruitcakes, something as lovely and light as, say, a panettone that's studded Mm -hmm. with some candied fruits. Some people might consider a form of fruitcake, although a very, very ethereal and delightful 
uh, form of fruitcake. The uh, different uh, ways that they're defined in different cultures, it's, it's very hard to draw these sorts of lines. Um, I mean, also thinking about some of the uh, Sienese panforte, which has some fruit sometimes, a lot of spices, some nuts, very dense things. Uh, it's a real continuum. It's very, very difficult right. to draw lines. Well, you mentioned panforte, and, and that it's it's interesting because it's it is very much a fruitcake that somebody forgot to put the flour and leavening in, maybe, and and sat on it. <laughs> it's right, very dense, very. And fat. there's actually something Candy. called a, there's something called a pinza in the in the uh, Po Valley that's very very close relative to what we would think of as a fruitcake. But again, you go back to you know candied fruit. Candied fruit was mm-hmm. crazy expensive mm-hmm. um, because it had to be preserved typically in sugar. Some of it was preserved in honey, but typically it was preserved in sugar. Um, and what other fruit did you have available in January and you know December? That's right, right. Nothing, you know. Uh, and, well, oranges. They didn't have oranges unless well, they, they were did, in Spain. But they I were mean, you know, candied and they yeah. were imported from right. Spain, so right. that they were um, again something that you would pull out all the stops at a holiday, but you wouldn't have on a day to day basis unless you were you know part of the one percent. Well, I was I I was looking at different um, fruit cakes, and of course, you know. Other than what people will, you know, imagine as, as you know, something that's tucked in the back of a cab, you know, cabinet that that fabled story of the regifted fruitcake every year, <laughs> nobody ever opens and eats. Um, but there are some. We mentioned panettone already um, from Italy, um, but there are uh, even the stolen, the German stolen is something is sort of like a version of a fruitcake. It's but, it's a distant relative, sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are those. There are the candied fruit in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it tends to be more of a tradition, I think, in the UK, definitely. Uh, there's lots of versions of it in Italy. Um, but if you look at early American recipes, one of the interesting things about Christmas is it's an odd mix of real tradition and kind of, we think it's tradition. <laughs> so much of, uh, much, of, much of Christmas as we know it was invented in the 19th century. Right. Um, but other things like the fruitcake, fruitcakes were what you normally had as, quote-unquote, cake 200 years ago in um, the early republic. So if you had an election cake, it was a fruitcake. Uh, later, a wedding cake would be Absolutely, a yeah. Well, and it, when um, Michael mentioned um, a um, an election cake, these were all... Just for our listeners who aren't aware, dense, they're denser cakes. They don't have; they're not the the fluffy, many layered cakes that that many people would think of as a cake. They're dense. Well, heavy it depends with fruit. on the type of cake. A lot of the election cakes are leavened; they're yeasted cakes. They're really breads, or at least what we now think of breads that are studded with right. sweets, or something like a panettone, as you mentioned. Right, exactly. Panettone is very light and fluffy, but oh. then again, that you know, that, but the other the other um, cakes were not. No, they weren't the, the fluffy. They, they weren't as light. I mean, think yeah. of the Twelfth Night Cake, which right. is something that now it tends to be leavened with eggs and is a traditional cake batter. But in the earlier times, when it was made and it's particularly popular in England, it would be something that would have been a yeasted uh, and risen cake. So these things do change with technologies, with oven technology, with the av- availability of other ways of leavening cakes. Mm-hmm. You know, leavening something uh, with eggs can certainly take an awful lot of arm power <laughs> right. in days before the uh, you know stand mixer. That's right. Uh, interesting. Uh, what else comes now um you mentioned um michael 
Um, Lebkuchen. Well, you said it better than I will. Lebkuchen. Lebkuchen. Okay. Um, some some other treats that come into your mind. Well, I think um, just to go back to the panettone, there's a mm -hmm. tradition of all sorts of enriched yeast um, yeast leavened breads that are appropriate for the two big Christian holidays, which is one for Christmas and you know another kind for Easter, so that. Um, a very similar dough is made in different shapes. Right, like the colombo, uh, the dove for Easter. Exactly. Right? I mean, where I grew up, which is the Czech Republic, which has a very much of this kind of Central European, vaguely Germanic uh, sensibility when it comes to Christmas, we would, for Easter, make a round-shaped, um, enriched, leavened bread, sweet, studded with uh, nuts and uh, studded with uh, dried fruit. And for Christmas, we would make virtually the same thing, but woven. And ah. the term for this is actually sort of Christmas bread. Huh. And you find the same thing in Austria and other places. And um, in parts of Alsace and so on, you would have these kugelhupfs, uh, which are, or they pronounce them gugelhupfe, um, <laughs> which are, to all intents and purposes, a, um, a, uh, a bundt cake, uh, but yeast leavened. And again, studded with... Um, some dried fruit, not quite as rich as a panettone or a fruitcake, but it would be what you did on a day-to-day -day basis, but richer and fancier. Um, another tradition that I came across recently was that in much of the Czech Republic, what's now the Czech Republic, the peasantry couldn't afford fish for Christmas Eve, and among Catholics, fish is very traditional for Christmas Eve, but fish was expensive. And so what they would do is they would make breads in the shape, shape of, of fish, fish. <laughs> to serve for Christmas. Well, that's inventive. I well, like I, that. I think Michael brings up a really excellent point in that so many of our Christmas <clears throat> foods are things that we saw in different iterations throughout the year, but they have been made to look Christmassy in one way, shape, or form. I'm thinking of um, the um, cinnamon uh, not the cinnamon, the peppermint sticks that are now candy canes. Candy canes, and that that's is what I wanted to talk about. That yeah. is something that they were made by hand in the 19th century and only mechanized and uh, popularized in the mid-20th century. But these peppermint sticks were something that you found year-round, and you still find either peppermint sticks or the little round discs of peppermint candy, and you think nothing of popping those throughout the year. But a candy cane is the only thing oh, that yeah. comes out no. at Christmas. And it is important <laughs> that it is that shape, and it's thought to evoke uh, a bishop's crozier, so it has all the appropriate religious symbolism. It's good that it also hangs on trees. That's got a That's second nice, yeah. uh, <laughs> advantage to it. You don't need any of those little metal hooks to hang it. It just fits on very nicely. Uh, but so many of the things that we have thought of as Christmas foods are made to look iconic emblems of Christmas rather than necessarily being something different and new. Right. And interesting that, because even the stick, the stick form, I mean, stick candies, pulled candies, they were around for a long time. And, you know, but until you put that little hook on the end of it, you know, it doesn't say Christmas, right? <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, you know, um, the, uh, what the, something we were talking about just before that, oh, it'll come to me. Um, the panettone, maybe it's the panettone, but the, I, they're a bishop's bread. Have you, have you, have you read about a bishop's bread? Slovakian, or, or I mean, I think Slovakia claims it. Norway claimed a lot of different countries claimed it. The bishop's bread, and and I just I ran across it and I didn't know it's sort of like a frosted, a frosted 
like fruitcake? Of, um, or- I, again, this, the Slovakian version I'm very familiar with. Mm. And the Slovakian version my grandmother always made, or the Czech version, I'm not sure where it actually comes from, um, was made with all the leftovers of the egg whites. It was an egg white base spread because so ah. many of these Christmas cookies are based on egg yolks. And so what do you do with all the egg whites? So it is a fruit bread or cake, if you will, made with egg whites. <coughs> that's, so, a, that's inventive. That's a good way, to, indeed, to use up all those egg whites, right? If you don't. So it sounds like it would be a relatively light and a delightful <laughs> respite from some of the uh, heavily yeasted and very, very dense things that we are used to for Christmas. But I'm not familiar with it. I'd love yeah. to try one no, sometime. No, and, and I just, I had never heard of it either. And I just sort of ran across it when I was doing some, you know, research prior to the show. And, and the egg whites that uh, Michael mentioned <coughs> came into play again because they, as I said, it was a frost version and they would make this you know this royal icing or beet icing and they would call beet they would the icing was what you do to the icing is you beat up a snow so they would make snow by beating up the egg whites and adding the sugar and make a big big fluffy thing and put it on the bread don't know how real it is but well i mean thinking about meringues though let's talk a little bit about the bouche de noel which is a gorgeous gorgeous rolled sponge cake with your buttercream that is so often decorated with meringue Eggs, uh, not eggs, mushrooms, uh, mushrooms, mushrooms yeah. <laughs> uh, and other treats. Woodsy items. Uh, yes. Woodsy items. And again, that's not a Christmas or a Christian symbol at all. But this goes back to the Yule log and is, has its pagan uh <laughs> bases but something that has been adopted and now you know any fine french patisserie is going to have gorgeous gorgeous yule logs on display which is what you will have for dessert on you know after christmas dinner oh and so much fun to make we're going to talk more about there's so many more treats to talk about but we're going to get back to those when we come back after a short break so stay tuned Ever wonder where your Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State-grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arriving to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer. And trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space and agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit christmastreesny.org. I'm Carrie Diamond. And I'm Claudia Wu. And we're the founders of Radio Cherry Bomb, which airs every Thursday at 1 o'clock on the Heritage Radio Network. We're nothing without our listeners, literally. Heritage Radio Network is a not-for-profit organization, and we rely on listener support. So, when you have a minute, go check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on Beating Heart. It's literally a beating heart. Give what you can. We appreciate every dime. 
We love bringing you conversations with coolest women in food. So help us continue to do that. Thank you for listening. And thank you for donating. You're You're the the bomb. bomb. Okay, we are back. I'm talking with Kathy Kaufman and Michael Crandall about Christmas treats and sweets. And we ended the conversation. We just brought up the the Bouche de Noël, the Yule log, not one that you would burn in the fire, but you all seen the beautiful Yule logs with chocolate frosting or rolled sponge. Well, it's basically a jelly roll, a rolled sponge cake, right? But Michael, you you said you had some interesting versions from well, France. Well, there, there was a, there was a point a couple of years ago when I looked into the history of the the Yule log or the Bouche de Noël, and you know it's sort of funny to think about that they would make a cake in the shape of a log when you stop to think about it. But, you know, in the ancient days, what they would do is they would get a big old log, and this was a tradition in France as in England, that would be big enough to burn for 12 days, the 12 days of Christmas. So that was the Yule log. A tree. (laughs) It was essentially a giant log that you put into your giant fireplace. But now imagine yourself in Paris in 1870. And you're living in a fourth-floor walk-up apartment. It's a very nice apartment, but it's a fourth-floor walk-up in the middle of Paris. You can't exactly bring up a 250-pound log to burn in your small stove. And so some pastry cooks, and the first recipes start to come in around the 1860s, uh, came up with this idea of, we'll make something that looks like a log so you can have something in your house. And then the tradition took off and, you know, the rest is history, as they say. But over the last about a dozen years or so, if you go to France around this time of year, all the patisseries are now competing against who can create the most inventive and the crazier Yule log. So I've seen Yule logs in the shape of school buses. Oh. I've seen them in the shape of the Statue of Liberty. I have seen them, you know, these years, who knows what they're making them out of. But uh, you know, giant iPhones. Um, <laughs> the competitive spirit at Christmas is just fantastic. And you look at any website of any major uh, French pastry shop, and they will have uh, dozens and dozens of these crazy things that look nothing like Yule Logs anymore, although they will still continue to call them a bouche de Noël. Huh, interesting. Yeah, you And, you know, the lore that surrounds some of these traditional Christmas treats is is as interesting as the treats themselves, and um, I remember what I, I my point before about the panettone, and that is the the stories that surround that from everything from being Tony's cake, which let's dispel from that myth immediately. But it's a beautiful myth. It though. Sounds, it's a romantic. But myth. that's just it. You know, there are all these wonderful stories that surround these these treats, and. I guess because we, you know, we imbue them with such, um, you know, warm, fuzzy notions of, you know, of the holiday time. And when you come to the panettone, it's really a phenomenon of the 1950s. Well, actually, not, well, it was industrialized in the 20s. It 1920s, was industrialized yeah. in the late 20s. Um, but it really, really didn't take off as a pan-Italian treat. It was a northern Italian thing. Right. Uh, right. Because panettone comes from Milan. Milano, right. And then in the 1950s, when Bowley and other companies started to manufacture it, and it became affordable, because if you go to uh, a pasticceria in northern Italy and have one of these artisanal panettone, it's going to cost you 40, 50 bucks. Right. But you can go to any supermarket and get, you know, the, the 1099 version. The 1099 right? <laughs> version. 
And consequently, what used to be a luxury good that really only the upper classes could afford became an industrial good. And now everybody in Italy thinks of panettone as an Italian yes, tradition. It's not Christmas until you cut open the panettone. That's right. Really. And, you know, it's, it, and that's happening, um, I see again, oh, I know from my own perspective, that um, in Milano, I wanted to go and I watched them when they first started at, at Peck. They were just taking the, the pentatonis out of the oven and they hang them upside down for a while. Just oh, did to they? Keep I didn't that, know yes, that. Yes, when okay. they come out of the oven, they hang them upside down to keep that fluffiness, you know, the big crown. And then that too, they, you know, they say, well, it's supposed to um, symbolize the bishop's crown or something. But um, it's just a nice big fluffy cake. But now here in America, too, there are a lot of Oh, they're bakeries. everywhere, aren't they? The ba- yeah. Well, the bakeries are starting to make artisanal versions of these cakes, and they are well worth, you know, the money because they are – it's just not that that dry, kind of tasteless crumb that you get from some of the cheaper versions. No, no, they're absolutely lovely. Um, I went uh, down to Little Italy earlier this week to buy my artisanal panettone, uh, although one that was made in Italy and uh, – imported in. And I've got a new flavor uh, profile for my panettone this year, mm. which is a lemon rosemary panettone. Oh, wow. That yes, sounds it's, great. It's, it's got a sugar uh, crust topping on it, and I can't wait to open it up in a couple of days and taste it. But it's interesting <laughs> how uh, some of our kind of contemporary ideas about what is appropriate for a dessert or a sweet, we've been adding Uh, salt to things, salted caramels. We've been using herbs with the more creative uh, pastry cooks in creating new sorts of desserts. And now it's uh, infiltrating into the, quote, very traditional, iconic uh, panettone that, you know, if you think of those, you know, bowel ones in the red boxes, Mm -hmm. you know, they're just there's a certain formula and it's going to have the raisins and a little candied orange and a little candied lemon and that's it. Don't mess with my panettone. <laughs> I'll take it in any form. Uh, moving on from Italy, there are... Well, you know, I'm not moving on too far. We'll go back to to um, England because we, we did talk... You mentioned plum puddings mm-hmm. and the steam puddings. And, um, of course, that brought on a whole thing of earthenware to make the special bowls to, to boil them in or steam them in. And steamers as big as a, a you know a six-foot man... Um, but the plum puddings, well, puddings in general are very, very popular in England. And the plum pudding, as, as you mentioned, Kathy, with the candied fruits. Then we, then we move over to pies. Pies were very special for the holidays. Again, anything that has a lot of sugar, butter, you know, eggs, and mincemeat. Who's going to take on mincemeat? Mincemeat. <laughs> um, something that in modern uh, iterations tends to to be candied fruits and things like that. But the traditional iteration, yes, there was chopped meat, uh, suet, particularly suet in the crust, which is uh, a kidney fat. Uh, there would be offal in it, you know, various organ meats, and you would put enough other flavorings in there to create this delightful, uh, some might call it hodgepodge, I'd prefer to call it a melange of different flavors, uh, but very rich, and it points to a time when we didn't have a sharp division between savory and sweet courses, Mm -hmm. and the idea of pairing fruits and sugar with meat was considered just part of the normal uh, food ways. And one of the beautiful things about a good mincemeat pie is that in the crust, it could last for 
an extended period of time, not months because the meats would eventually go off, but there was usually enough fat and sugar that these could last uh, days or weeks without refrigeration. Hmm. Self-preserving. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You can read about them in some of the uh, colonial era and new nation cookbooks about how long these cakes would various, or rather these pies would last. Hmm. Uh, well, we move from England further, further east, actually, to Eastern Europe. And um, in Russia, there are um, spice cookies. Well, we were talking about the gingerbread, but they have their own version of a spice cookie. Um, Prianiki? Do you know, you know Michael? I'm not are you super familiar, familiar with that. Okay. No, but, I, I, uh, look, I, I saw a questioning look on your face. So I'm no, like, okay, but I, we'll mean, I think what you find is throughout kind of starting somewhere in Alsace, going east, 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 you have a whole variety of various kinds of spice cookies. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Dutch have something they call pepernoten. Uh, I'm not pronouncing that. I'm sure, right? But uh, which are which have black pepper in them, like uh, a pfeffernus, like okay. a pfeffernus. Yeah. Same idea. So spice cookies, and this is where the tradition does go back to the medieval period. So that with spice cookies, spice breads, gingerbread, um, the fruit cakes, the fruit, uh, the the figgy, the figgy pudding. Uh, <laughs> All of these things really do have a tradition that goes back and back and back and back. Um, Not necessarily always associated with Christmas, but since the 19th century, definitely associated with Christmas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are so many of these treats, and you just, that was, I'm glad you mentioned that, that um, so many of these treats are now made, you often find them throughout the year. And it's a little disappointing that we, you know, it's like, getting, uh, I don't know, raspberries in February, you know, yes, raspberries are growing somewhere in February, but that, that anticipation of waiting for a special treat to the right season somehow gets lost when we have these things available to us year round. Um, I'm, and I'm just recently came across that, um, with a Polish, Polish Hungarian, um, treat that for me was always a Christmas treat and that's a kifli. A flaky pastry with a um, a nut um, and egg white and nut sugar filling, and uh, I see them. And I went uh, back to Indiana, which was where all the the poles in my community came from, and they were on the market shelves year round, as well as the bow ties, the krushni or mm-hmm. the krushki. Yeah, that. I just sort of said, mm, that's a little disappointing because it was sort of like a special thing to be made and, and to come out, you know, and, and during the Christmas season. Uh, anything that from, well, Michael, you, you're in the Czech Republic, or Kathy, from you, from your background, anything that held special, special favor for you at this holiday time? I've made Twelfth Night Cakes for, oh, about... Uh, 10 years running now. I've had uh, one of them, too. And uh, it was yes, delicious. <laughs> yes, yes. Actually, probably even longer now. But the Twelfth Night Cake is the way you send out the Christmas season, the 12 days of Christmas. Twelfth Night falls on Epiphany. And it is, uh, again, a fruitcake variety, although it's got quite a bit of cakey matter and not terribly, terribly 
dense with fruits, often has um, some sort of smooth icing, could be a marzipan, that's what I tend to uh, use, and they need to be decorated. In the um, 18th and 19th century, the decorations were actually quite elaborate. Uh, they could be standing figures. There was a uh, stock group of characters that might show up on a Twelfth Night cake from your best uh, pastry makers uh, in England. And uh, people could have all sorts of raucous parties surrounding the Twelfth Night cake. There would be a bean that would be baked into the cake, at least originally. And whomever got the bean was the king of the feast. Uh, and depending upon where you were and what time... Uh, it might mean that you were then stuck with the bill for hosting the next year's ah. <laughs> uh, party. So it might not be a good thing to get the bean, although if you were sufficiently affluent, it was uh, fun and uh, an honor to uh, host the uh, party the following year. But it was the way of sending out uh, the Christmas year with the uh, with the cake. The Twelfth Night, it's special. You know, you needed something after all of the indulgences. You really had to have a one blowout event to uh, bring the season to a close. That's right. And Michael, you anything that... I have a somewhat crassly commercial memory, which has to do with... Um, in Central Europe, they often decorate the trees with uh, foil-covered chocolates. So you buy different foil-covered chocolates and you hang them all over the tree, you know, instead of balls or whatever, other kinds of chocolate or uh, other kinds of ornaments, so that the entire tree becomes a giant chocolate treat. Mm. <laughs> and because we would never get the tree until Christmas Eve, basically Christmas Day and the next few days following it, the tree was gradually but systematically denuded <laughs> of its Christmas ornaments. Um, and although I'm sure that tradition, as if we can even call it that, goes back no more than the 1920s, um, it is a delightful one that I still remember. Well, it, and indeed, the season brings a lot of memories of all kinds of things, and mostly sweet ones. We hope they're all sweet memories. And this was a delightful talk to learn about all of these Christmas treats, and I wish you all a very happy holiday and sweet eating. And thanks for listening to A Taste of the Past. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network you can like us on facebook and follow us on twitter at heritage underscore radio you can email us questions anytime at info at heritage radio network.org heritage radio network is a 501c3 non-profit to donate and become a member visit our website today thanks for listening